And so in the next week, or week and a half, I think, pretty much if you are a registered Washington voter, you will be getting um, a ballot in your mailbox. And so this is kind of like a crazy time because we're going to be hearing many people might vote like in the next week, and then you have to listen to all of this rhetoric for like the two weeks after that. So it's, it's not an enjoyable time. And so, but we're going to read about scripture and look about how God would have us look at governing authorities because sometimes they don't mesh exactly with scripture in a lot of these things. And so as an American citizen, we have the benefit of voting. We have the benefit of being a part of a, dem- a democracy. And so on display right now is there this interaction Especially, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and I'm a pastor, so I, I look to how other Christians are um, interpreting the election and how other churches might be um, giving their standpoints and stuff. So you have a number of different denominations and Christian churches that are interacting with this political process. You have a number of high-profile church leaders and church speaking out on a number of different issues. And then what's really interesting is there's all these polls um, about how Christians are going to be voting in this election. And so it's, it's interesting to me because, I mean, have, has anyone ever been called by a poll on the phone? Just, I just wanted to ask. So I see like three hands. Is it, or four? Okay. I've always wondered, like, who, who are these polls? Like, I want to be asked. I want to give my opinion, you know, um, on these things. But I guess that's why we have ballots, you know, because we all get to give our opinion in that sense. And so let me give you the fine print of today's talk. Open life does not endorse any candidate or political party. We can't do that. That's like literally not legal. And so I'm not going to stand up here and say, you should vote this way or you should vote that way or you should vote for this person or this measure or this law. And so I just want to make that clear. And really, at the end of today's talk, my hope would be that all of us would hear God say to us, my name's Jesus and I approve this message, you know? Like, that would be my hope. And wouldn't that be reassuring for you if every Sunday that happened is like, as you're walking out, it's like, you know, God just spoke to you and said, I'm Jesus, and I approved that message. And so it would be good. And so hopefully at the end of the day, this is not like um, an endorsement for either candidate. So it's not like you'd be thinking, oh, yeah, well, he's voting for that person. And so I think it's a dangerous gray area when leaders of the church specifically in different churches, um, kind of come out and endorse or, or highly recommend or de- declare God's will for specific candidates, measures, and laws that are being voted on. It's just, it's a dangerous thing. And because when politics and Christianity mix, it's never going to come out the way anybody wants it to come out. It's going to dishonor one side or the other. And so a couple of things on why this is dangerous, in my opinion, is that it always makes God seem like he can't make up his mind. Because if you ask one Christian, they believe this candidate's the chosen one. And if you ask another Christian, this candidate's the chosen one. And so it's like, is God just speaking differently to different people? And so as, as believers in God and believing that he has one voice, it makes God look pretty silly when we do that. And so another thing it does, it creates unneeded division within the body of Christ with just everyone fighting. And then three, it diverses the efforts of the church from what is truly important and directs it towards a fool's errand. And so what I mean by that is that the church is not established in order to create government. The church is established to love people and bring people to Jesus and meet people's needs in a practical way. 
And so that's the heart of what we're talking about today. In that the truth of the matter is if churches, pastors, and Christians focused on how to make Christians love more, to love deeper, to the extent that Jesus showed us to love, I believe that our politics would change, our focus and mindsets would change, and every four years God would still be honored and not dishonored like the way I think he is sometimes when you read certain people's posts and when you, you, read, you watch these videos of these Christian leaders and it's just like you are blindly following a ruler and we're supposed to follow Jesus in all things. And so as a Christian, I've been watching, I've been reading all this stuff, and my biggest concern and greatest fear, and we're going to talk about fears today, is about how the church is going to come out looking after this election. Because sometimes, I don't know, because like the media will say, you know, all Christians are supporting this candidate, and it's like, no, no, they're not. And then it's like, it's not about that. Christians are supposed to love Christ. And so, so, so that's, that's kind of what we're, we're talking about. Last week, we really talked about, in chapter 12, Paul focused on how Christians are supposed to love one another, and in turn, how we love other people. So he talked about a lot about enemy love, and it's a countercultural type of love. It's not what everyone does. It's not just like the love, it's not a normal love. It's a love that goes beyond what we had ever hoped or imagined. It goes beyond what we, what we think. And so my question for you today, and it it's, might be a hard question for you, is are you more American than you are Christian? The follow-up is should we be Americans with a little bit of Christian flavor or Christians with a little bit of American flavor? And so that's what we're going to be thinking about is holding these, these two things in balance and how do we live Christian lives in, in a kingdom of man. And so that's what we're going to start off in Philippians 1.27. Paul says this, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. And then, and this is not on the screen, but in um, chapter 3, verse 20 of Philippians, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul understood in his culture and his time that when people choose to follow Jesus, they become citizens of heaven. They become part of the kingdom of God. And so today, our big idea today is that we live to honor God. We live to honor God first. We are citizens in heaven first because my American citizenship is solely based on the fact that I was born in a hospital that resided in a, within a border. I didn't do anything to deserve to become an American. I'm glad that I am. I love our country. I love the opportunities that it affords people. But I didn't do anything to earn this. My citizenship to Christ, though, is based on his love for me and my decision to follow him. And so if I were to leave this country's borders, depending on which country I would go to, say I'm going on vacation, I would have different rights depending upon the country that I was in at that time. And my, my, really, a lot of my American rights go out, out the window when I'm in a different country. But the cool thing is, is that because I'm a citizen of, of heaven and I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God because I've chosen to follow Jesus, that I have an instant connection to other Christians all across the world. So I've been to Germany before, and I got to interact with Christians that, that were in Germany. And it's like, d despite the fact that 
they're German citizens and I'm an American citizen, we have a connection because we're both citizens of heaven. We can join together and know that we are on the same side. And so if we're going to think like that, that the kingdom, of he- the kingdom of heaven and of God is first, then it really shows us how we should look at our kingdom of man, that is, being citizens of the United States. And so another way to look at it is that there are these two kingdoms. You got the kingdom of man, which is, for our context, the United States of America, and then you have the kingdom of God. And so we know about the kingdom of God because of the life that Jesus lived. He came to usher in the kingdom of God, and when he, when he died and then was um, rose again three days later, he said that I'm going to return again and bring the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And so we are in this time of, you know, the kingdom of God is here, but it's not yet totally fulfilled. And so Jesus came to earth to set this kingdom of God into motion. And as people have come to have, who have come to know and follow Jesus, the kingdom of God should take precedence over everything else in our lives. We have chosen to let Jesus be the Lord of our lives. That's another way to put it. And so what that means is that he calls the shots now. He is like the boss. And so we choose to follow him because he loves us, and he loves us so much that he died for us. And so that's what we now, the context of the way we live our lives. That's the definition that we choose to let our lives be defined by, is that I'm a son or a daughter of Christ, and I'm going to choose to live my life differently. So if the kingdom of God is here, but it's not quite fulfilled, how am I to live my life as still being a part of the kingdom of man? And so the first encouragement that I have for you today when we're looking about, looking at um, the kingdom of man as far as our country is that everything will be okay. Thought number one, everything will be okay. You know, what I really enjoy about being a follower of Jesus is that this relationship offers me the opportunity to look at situations that other people are freaking out about and know that I have the confidence in God to know that He is in control. That whatever is going on, and so it can be super personal things that are, you're going through in your life, but it can also be like big global things, like, like our election, for instance. There's people that are just freaking out if one president gets elected or if another person does, or, you know, there's weird circumstances where this third-party candidate that no one's ever heard of could be president because like a, it's like a hung jury of the ballot. And so it's like when you think about those things, you can get concerned. Okay, who's going to be leading our country? Who's going to be the leader of the free world? But like for me, as a follower of Jesus, I don't have to freak out about that because I know that God is in control. In chapter 12, the renewing of our mind affords us that. We get to renew our minds and think differently about the kingdom of God and about the kingdom of man. And so, but there are genuinely held fears from people from every perspective about who's going to be president. Some of them are really concerning. I have concerns about each candidate if they're elected. But uh, some of them are just a little unjustified, I think. But in either case, we know that God is in control. And so this verse that we just read, or the verse that we're going to read in Romans 13, is a part of the reason that we can have that confidence. And really, Paul's beginning to talk about, okay, we talked about in the last chapter about how Paul 
is teaching Christians how to live with each other, and now Paul's going to teach us how we can interact with governing authorities. And so Romans 13, 1 through 2 says, Everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. And so that leads us to our second thought, is that all authority has been set up by God. And so when it comes to governmental powers of the world and the leaders that are part of those systems, we have to understand that God is working and he has put those people in place. And it's important to understand that the kingdom of man and that the kingdom of God are in place and they are separate and they are different and it's, you cannot merge them together. The role of the church is to love and the role of the government is to maintain order and bring justice We read that last week, that the role of the church is to love each other, to have that enemy love, to take our love and go even farther than we think we can with it. But the role of our governments is to rule and to bring justice and to work that out. And so God is working behind the scenes, and he's making those things work. And so that's not to say that every action that governments take is an act that is God, but it's God's working for the good to make something happen. And so and the good example of this is what we read in John 19 and, the, and Jesus being arrested. And so we're going to read a verse from there. But to set it up, the Jews have arrested Jesus and they would rather, they just want to kill him like right on the spot because he proclaimed to be God and they didn't believe that he was God. And so they take him to the uh, Roman governor. His name was Pontius Pilate. And they say, you know, because the Romans are in rule, we're not allowed to exact our own justice, but will you do it for us? And so Pilate's like, um, why do I want to concern myself with your affairs? And so then he brings Jesus back, and so this is what it says in John 19, 9 through 11. He, talking about Pilate, took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, you would, not, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. So Jesus himself said to Pilate, he said, you would have no power over me at all unless it was given to you from above. And so that gives us a small window into the understanding about how God can use the actions of the authorities of our time and work them according to his own plan. And so if you think about that, a ruler who, according to Jesus, was put in power by God, is trying to maintain order by killing Jesus. And it's it's like, that brings up a lot of questions about God's sovereignty and his power and his plan and how he's working. And so that is not the plan that I would have chosen to bring salvation to everyone. But it's the plan that God used. And so it's crazy to think that God put this man in power that was actually going to kill his son, but then bring about salvation for all mankind for eternity after that fact. And so when we're trying to understand, God, how are you working with these different authorities? How come this person is in power? How come that's what's going on in that part of the country? We have to understand that he's working these things together for his plan, and we have to trust him. 
And so knowing all this, we don't rebel against these, these authorities. And so we have the privilege in our country to have a vote. We have a voice. But even if your polit pol particular political party is not in power, we still, un we still honor, we still pray for those in authority. Ecclesiastes 10.20 says, Never make light of the king, even in your thoughts. And don't make fun of the powerful even in your own bedroom, for a little bird might deliver, deliver your message and tell them what you said. And so we can have a differing opinion about our political stances, about certain things. We can, we can choose to want this person to be president or that person to be president. But in all things, we need to honor and pray for those that are in power, that have been elected, and that are going to be elected. And so we always hear... I love it that every four years there's these posts and just people talking like we Christians really need to start praying. And it's like, start praying now? It's like, why haven't we been praying this whole time? Like, why haven't we been praying continually for our president, for our congressmen, for our senators, for our governors, for our mayors, for our council members in our cities? Why aren't we a people that comes together and prays for the prosperity of our communities all the time? And that's my challenge to you, is don't just stop praying after November 8th because you're mad that someone got elected or that you're like, well, my person got in. I don't need to pray anymore. It's, no, let's make prayer a continual thing. Pray continually for those that are in leadership. So Paul continues in Romans 13, 3 through 5. He says, For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but to also keep a clear conscience. And so if we live according to the laws of the kingdom of man, according to the authorities that are over us, we have nothing to fear in forms of punishment. And we also keep a clear conscience. And so it's not, Paul's not just saying, you know, do it because that's what, like, you're supposed to do, or that's what you have to do. He's saying, do it because you'll have a clear conscience. Do it because that is what's right for you in your context. But what about when we have genuine fears about the future of our earthly kingdom? What if we have genuine fears about where our country is going to be in 4, 8, 12, 16 years. And so thought number three is that our fears are not justified. And so that's not just say like, yeah, what you're fearing about, don't even worry about it. But it is to say we have to think about what we put our confidence in. Our fears are never justified because we have our hope in God. We don't need to fear anything. And so you, you read reports, confidence in the economy is down right now, so is the confidence in our safety. Even though, if you read this crime statistics, they're at an all-time low in our country right now. But fear is just being played upon in, in us. Fear is a motivator that will lead us to rash decision and alienate those that we are not comfortable with. Sometimes we, we get fearful because we read a news story and we think that that's how all people are going to act or be like. But today, I want to be someone that doesn't promote the negative. I want to be someone that promotes the positive. And the positive is that God has loved us so that we can love others. 
And if we choose to have the love that Christ has for other people, we're going to open doors that don't lead to fear, but to lead to new opportunities and new experiences. Don't let cynicism, cynicism and like this negative spirit that's going on right now rob you of real-life conversations with those that are close to you, like in your families, but also people that are different from you. Go out and understand someone from their perspective and get to know them a little bit. I think we've lost the art of neighboring because we've learned to let fear run the show. It's really easy to be skeptical, skeptical of people, of your neighbors, of people that you interact with, or like you go to the mall and you could easily say, oh, is something bad going to happen? Is there going to be a shooting here or something? And you're like, I better not drive through that area of town because that's a, that's a bad neighborhood. And so we lose opportunities that we shouldn't be losing and letting fear take root in our hearts. And so just to address one thing, if your fears are genuinely for like the future of the church, like because you might think, well, if this person comes into power in our country, then the rights of the church are going to be taken away. I just want to reassure you that the church has been existing for 2,000 years and God's never let evil prevail over it. God's never let evil prevail over the church to where you would say the church is dead. And then oftentimes when you find that Christians are being persecuted or their rights are being taken away or even they're being killed, that's the time when the Spirit of God moves at its greatest power and more and more people come to know and follow Jesus. So not that I'm saying that I want Christians to start being killed. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that we can always have our trust and our hope and our confidence in Christ because we are part of Christ's body and he loves his church. Romans 13, 6 through 7 says, pay your taxes too. So Paul's going on, he's saying, pay your taxes too for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. They are serving God and what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. So kind of just reiterating of what we've been talking about. But as part of the kingdom of God, it's not like we can sit here and say, well, because I'm a Christian, then I don't need to pay taxes. Because I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm not, I don't need to pay the taxes because I'm part of this other kingdom. I'm not part of that kingdom. I don't need to pay for that one. Paul's saying, no, you are part of the kingdom of God, but you're also part of the kingdom of man, and you need to pay the taxes that are expected of you, just like everyone else. And so above all, we need to honor and respect those in authority. And that goes back to us praying for people and, and just praying for people no matter what, praying and loving them and joining, like, as much as we can, joining in hand in hand with people and working for good. And so there's a few ways that you can walk on this tightrope of being part of two kingdoms. And so I want to address a couple, three of those things, and I'm going to give you a hint on what I think you should do. But number one is that you could seclude yourself. You could say, I'm a part of the kingdom of God, so I'm going to separate myself as far away from the kingdom of man as possible. You know, I'm going to try and get out of paying taxes because I'm part of the kingdom of God. I'm not going to do this. And so you could say, you know what? I'm not even going to, you know, show up to community events. I'm not going to interact with the community. I'm going to, maybe I'm going to start a farm and I'm going to put walls up around my property and no one can come in because I'm worshiping God over here 
I'm not going to interact with culture. So you can do that. I mean, more power to you. I just don't think that's what Jesus would have done. Number two, you could try and bring the kingdoms together. So this is where I might step on some toes. Maybe you think that a better vision for the kingdom of man is that if it looked more like the kingdom of God. And so you think, well, maybe if we started legislating these Christian principles and we started, you know, just saying, you know what, we need to make everyone follow the rules that are in the Bible because that's the way God intended it to be. And you can try that and you can do that, but I think you're just going to alienate people that have, they might not know anything about Jesus in their first experience is that, oh, I get to follow a bunch of these rules that have no bearing on my life. You could try that. You could do that. And throughout history, we have done that. And throughout history, there's been tension and there has been heartache between the church and how it interacts with culture because people think that we are just there to judge them, put laws in front of them, and say, you know what? Do this before you even know who Jesus is. And so you could do that as well. But number three is where I think Jesus lands, and I think it's where we can land today, is that we can be fully committed to the kingdom of God while participating in the kingdom of man as much as we can. We can be full members of the kingdom of God. We can say, this is number one. This is what I'm all about. And then as much as I can, as much as my beliefs will allow me, I'm going to be a part of the kingdom of man and the processes that it has for us. I'm going to honor and pray for my leaders I'm going to be a part of my community. I'm going to get into my neighborhood and make changes. I'm going to love people, no matter what background they come from. I'm going to invite them to come to church. I'm going to invite them to be a part of my life. And it's basically you get to show people what the kingdom of God looks like by unleashing the love of Jesus upon their lives. And I think that's what Jesus did. Jesus was a part of this weird time where it had this like kingdom of a man in the Roman, in the sense of the, he had the Romans in rule over Israel, but he also had this other kingdom of a man thing in the Pharisees, which was basically like kingdom of God and man together. And it's just this huge mess. And Jesus says, no, let's just love people. Let's, let's follow God and trust in him. And let's believe for life Let's believe for peace. Let's love our enemies, and let's have a different kind of love that's going to change community. And throughout history, things have been changing for people that have truly believed and followed him. And so thought number four today is that we need to be careful with our religious beliefs. We need to be careful with our religious beliefs, the things that we hold on to. Don't misrepresent the kingdom of God by the way that you represent and participate in the kingdom of man. We dishonor Christ's name and do irreparable harm to his church when we act like a political party represents the will of God. We're saying that our plan is better than God's when there's huge blind spots in them. And so this is not to dig on any political party. This isn't to say one's better than the other, but it is to say that none of these political parties, none of these candidates will ever embody the true and full character of Jesus. Even if a party did, even if a party said, you know, we're going to do everything the way Jesus did it, I doubt anyone would want those people in power of our country 
Do you really want a president that's going to say, we need to love our enemies and turn the other cheek? I mean, I would want that. I think that'd be awesome. But I don't think my non-Christian friends are going to really think that's great. When we say, you know what? I'm going to turn the other cheek and I'm going to love people no matter what. But that's the power of God. That's the power of things. And so when we try and make a party, the chosen ones of God, we really dishonor Christ's body. And that's his true church. And that's the unity that we have all here together. And so I just want to bring up a quick thought is that we are always in the kingdom building process. But it always depends on what kingdom you're trying to build. Are we trying to be builders of the kingdom of God? Or are we trying to be builders of the kingdom of man? The role of the government is to establish order, maintain justice as best they can, but our role as citizens of heaven is to unleash love, peace, hope, and mercy for God's kingdom wherever we are present in our lives, whether that's in our jobs, in our communities, our homes, our families, whatever, wherever God has put you to be, that is where the kingdom of God needs to flourish in your life. And so sometimes that means we have to just walk and figure out how we can hold these two things together. How do I hold the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man together? And so, but what about if laws were put in place that really just, like, I can't do that because I am a Christian? Like, what if, what if people started to say, you have to murder people? And I'm like, um, I have a really big problem with murdering people. I'm not going to do that. And so we read in Acts 5 of civil disobedience by the disciples where they said, you know, you guys are preaching Jesus as God, and we do not agree with that. We're going to put you in prison. But then they were released from prison. They said, you know what, we're going to do it whether you like it or not. And so you can put us in prison if you want to, but we're just going to keep preaching the name of Jesus. And so they did this. And so you have this toil, this inner struggle within and say, okay, are we supposed to follow the kingdom of man? Are we supposed to follow the kingdom of God? And they follow the kingdom of God. And so it is, it's something you hold to, you balance it and you say, as much as I can, I'm going to be a part of the kingdom of God until it directly conflicts with what I know that God has called me to do. And so we live with the government, but we live for Christ and his kingdom. So all of this is really to talk about what Jesus' kingdom looks like. And so he, he talked about this in Matthew 25, and there's this cool picture of Jesus. He's been explaining his whole like, ministry, saying, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what it looks like. Follow me, follow me, do this, do this. And so then he gives this like, quick thought about, this is what's going to happen when I return. And so this is what Jesus says. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit this, the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. 
Then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was angry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty, or or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And not help you. And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you're refusing to help me. And so this should be the way that we live in our earthly kingdoms, in our earthly countries, is by looking to the needs of those that are in need, those that are in hungry, those that are disadvantaged. That's the love of Jesus. And so when we're establishing kingdom of God and we're worrying about kingdom of man stuff, it's like, I'm going to love. I'm going to be, I guess what I'm trying to explain is that there is a freedom that we have in this political process right now, not to be bogged down by issues or by candidates or by anything, but in all things to unleash the power of love. We should be busy loving people as best as we can at all times versus trying to divide each other because we believe someone is a chosen one for our country. And so you can hold on to those things strongly. You can believe in a certain way. And so I'm not dogging on you if you believe that. But at the forefront and at the front of everything that you do in your life, you should be building a kingdom of God first. And the kingdom of man comes behind it. And so my action, the action point today that we have is that we need to honor God and we need to honor people. And so this is not a passive thing. This is not to say, well, I guess I'm just going to let this political process go. I don't even know if I'm going to vote. You know, I'm not going to be a part of it. So that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying we need to be active in loving people as much as we can. We need to be active in loving our neighbors and loving our coworkers in being with those family members that just irk us to death is that we are going to be active in loving them no matter what. And so the cool thing today and what I've been looking forward to all day is that we are going to take communion today. And so the symbolism that, of communion was established by Jesus. On the night he was getting ready to be crucified, he brought together people to a table and he said, When I rip this bread and you eat it, this is symbolizing my body that I've given for you. And then he took the cup and he said, when I drink this drink and you drink it too, this is a symbol of my blood that I shed for you. And so the symbolism is that we get to participate in that today. We get to remember a sacrifice. We get to thank him for that. But then I also think about being around that table with him, with the rest of the disciples who come from different ideologies, if you read about some of these disciples, one was a tax collector, one was a zealot who believed in political overthrow through violence. You have two fishermen, I mean, more than two fishermen probably. So you have these just average Joes, people gathered around a table, 
And God said, you all get to be unified through my sacrifice for you. And the disciples didn't understand at that time, but they realized it afterwards. And Paul gives us instructions in another, in another book in 1 Corinthians about how we are to take communion together. And so today I want you to think, not only are we remembering God, but we are joining together with the body of Christ as one unified body to say, man, I'm a part of the kingdom of God first. And so it was like, as you take it and you walk back to your seat, you could look and maybe watch someone else take it. Not in a creepy way, like watching someone eat, like, you know, you're not at the table. Or I was thinking like, one thing I don't remember, it's really hard for me to remember people and how they eat. So I'm not asking you to do that, but I'm asking you to look at your friends, look at your loved ones as they take communion today and realize that you are united in the kingdom of God. That we get to join at God's table and we get to be unified in his sacrifice and his love for people. And one of the cool things when Paul talks about this is he, he said, when we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. When we to choose to take communion, we are declaring that he died and rose again for us and we are waiting for his kingdom to come to full fulfillment. And that's exciting for me. That's exciting for me in this time of hostility and this time of division when people are so mad at each other on Facebook and on social media. People are going crazy. But I know that if I take this bread and I drink this cup and I've chosen to follow Jesus, I'm united with people that are more concerned about loving others than they are about bringing authoritarian rule over a, a border. And so that's what our heart today. And so when we talk about communion, the first question to ask is, have you chosen to follow Jesus? Paul says, don't take it if you don't believe in Jesus. And if you don't take it because you haven't made that decision, there's no judgment here. So it's like, don't, don't worry about it. Number two, he says, think about your own sin. Think about if you have something in your life that you need to give up. And so we do that as well. And so it's not something that we do just to say, I'm just going to eat the bread and drink wine. But it's, just, it's a reflective process where we examine ourselves and we say, God, what are you trying to work on in me? What are you trying to work through inside of my heart? So as they play, don't feel a rush to go do it, but take time to maybe think, God, what are you speaking to me? How am I looking at other people? And then as they play, maybe, maybe you want to go over and grab it. But we're going to do that as we worship today. So God, we just come before you today and we say thank you. We say thank you for your sacrifice that we can be unified into you, that we get to remember what you did for us by dying on the cross and being raised back to life three days later and knowing that we are waiting for the fulfillment of your kingdom, God. I pray, Lord, that we would be challenged to love others to the full extent that you taught us to love people. So God, I pray right now if there's anyone here who has never chosen to follow you, I pray, Lord, that they would do that today, that they just say right now in their hearts, God, I choose to follow you and I want to see what this life is all about and I'm choosing to walk according and to follow you in all my life. God, I pray for those two that have already been walking, walking towards you. And I pray, Lord, that if there's things in our hearts and our lives that we need to give up, that we need to give back to you, that we need to repent and turn away from, I pray, Lord, that we'd be honest with ourselves, that we would do that, and we'd go and remember you as we take communion. 
God, Lord, let us above all else know that we are citizens of heaven, unified under your death and resurrection, waiting for the time and you return. In your name we pray. Amen.